Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Really, really glad each of you are here this morning and decided to be with us. Uh, we have a few more weeks left in a series that we've been in this fall called Supper with Friends, a study of meals with Jesus, looking primarily at the Gospel of Luke uh, and the meals Jesus would have uh, with his people and with, and with others that weren't just followers of him. Uh, you know, there's an interesting thing about food. If you look at food and it's used throughout the scriptures, uh, food and eating uh, in the Bible were a way of showing dependence on God. Uh, God's people depended on him and his provision. It's the way Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. It, it's dependence on God. But today I think many of us can show our independence from God by how we treat and use food. We can use food for control. And the world has fallen apart. Our internal life is out of control. At least we can control food. And this is where things like anorexia begin to appear. Did you know that Americans spend over $50 billion a year on dieting? Americans spend more money on dieting than on world missions. It's control. We can use food for image as a way of expressing who we want to be. We can be concerned for our own glory rather than God's glory. Our concern for self-image really is deep down a desire to be God-like. Model Kate Moss put it well when she said, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. We can use food for refuge. Uh, we can self-medicate with food, finding comfort from the world's sorrows through sugar, salt, fat. We eat for relief. We can use food for identity. It's a little bit different than image, not body image, but our identity. We can eat at fancy restaurants to proclaim the lifestyle that we want to aspire to. We can shop at Whole Foods to proclaim that we're progressive and mindfully organic with our food. And looking at how we use food reveals our hearts, our thinking, our beliefs. We're going to look at a meal that Jesus hosts this morning that has pointed a revelation about Jesus' heart, life, his gospel, and his kingdom as we've looked at so far in this series. We're going to look at Jesus' last meal before his death. In our country, it's customary that a person on death row is given a feast of their choosing before they die. And historically, uh, what they've eaten is printed about in the newspaper. Um, I don't know if it's to satisfy the interest, morbid interest of the crowds who watched, but people wanted to know what did this condemned man or this condemned woman eat and drink before dying? We can ask the same question about Jesus. He was a condemned man who had one last meal to eat before dying. It was the night Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. He would then be condemned and crucified on a cross for crimes he did not commit few hours after this meal, he would be arrested, beaten, abused, and he would die in an excruciating crucifixion and then have his body placed in a tomb. What I'm about to read is the last night of Jesus' life on earth. He had one last meal to eat with his disciples. It would be his farewell feast, and it would communicate pointedly and clearly why Jesus came and why he would die. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as we give attention to God's word. We're going to look at Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. This is God's word to us this morning. 
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now by your spirit. Use the scriptures that which you have revealed yourself through to press into our thoughts, to change our hearts, to transform the way we live our lives. God, we need to encounter you this morning, so would you do it? Would you use your spirit to really speak to each of our spirits individually and as a body, as a community, that we might see Jesus and experience Jesus clearly this morning? Thank you that you're with us. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. But we're going to look at three things this morning about this farewell feast, this last meal of Jesus with his disciples. This is a meal of love, it's a meal of community, and it's a meal of hope. A meal of love, a meal of community, and a meal of hope. Let's look first at a meal of love. Verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Five times in our passage, Luke, the author of this gospel, makes it really clear. This is Passover time. The Passover was here, which Passover was an annual celebration by God's people, celebrating God's redemption and deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In Luke 22, verses 14 through 20, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, which some have called Holy Communion. Others have called the Eucharist. He is instituting the Lord's Supper as a replacement of Passover. The annual celebration of God's redemption at Passover would now be replaced by the Lord's Supper, a celebration of God's redemption through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper is a meal that we partake of weekly here at Christ Central Church. We believe this meal is central and crucial to spiritual growth and to spiritual renewal. Now, if we're going to do this meal every week, I think it's important that we understand the Lord's Supper. If we want to understand the Lord's Supper, Luke is making it very clear that we have to understand Passover. The Passover centered around four cups of wine. The first cup would be brought in and drunk before the arrival of the traditional Passover food. 
Traditional Passover food was unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and the roast lamb. And when the food came into the room, the youngest person in the room would ask, why do we eat these foods on this night? And then in reply, the father would tell the story of the Exodus, God releasing Israel from bondage in Egypt, God's redemption of Israel out of slavery. And the company in attendance would respond by singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 115. And then the second cup was brought in just before the meal itself was going to be eaten. And the plate of unleavened bread was lifted up. And the father would say, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. But in this Passover meal, Jesus adds something very astounding. He lifts up the bread and he says, this is my body. This is my body. Now, here's the first thing I want to make uh, clear about this statement of Jesus. The focus of the Lord's Supper is Jesus, not the bread, not the wine. There is nothing extraordinary about the bread and the wine. But Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body. The bread that Jesus is serving the disciples is a sign. It points beyond itself to something greater. It points beyond itself to Jesus' death on the cross. See, the, the bread was a sign. But when I say sign, I don't want you to merely think of this table as something that points away from itself to, to what Jesus did. There, there is something very significant and meaningful and spiritual that happens every time we come to this table and to this meal. It's not just a sign. The bread and the wine are a picture. Track with me here. Most of us have photographs, whether they be in our homes or on our phones. We keep photographs that capture important moments or important people in our lives. When I come into my house, I see a photo in our kitchen of my wife holding our firstborn son, sitting next to me on the front porch of our old house, and our old dog Tucker is sniffing the head of our first son. I see that photograph, and there is a deep connection. I'm, I'm almost taken back to that moment, like I'm, I'm there again. There's deep meaning when I look at that photo. Let me try to put it another way, because I know what I'm trying to convey is hard to get our minds around. If I were to have a picture of my wife, Rachel, and if I were to hold it up and say, this is my wife, you know that the picture is not really Rachel. It's just a picture. But you also know that when I say that, there's deep meaning and love felt, right? That it's more than just a printout of my wife. It represents her. It is her in a sense. Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body. It is a sign pointing beyond the bread to Jesus' life, death, and ultimate resurrection, and it's a picture. In some sense, we are spiritually transported in a mystical sense to be with Jesus, connecting with him in a very real way. Jesus isn't arbitrary. We experience him in a real sense as we taste the bread and we drink the cup. Robert Bruce said in this meal, it's not that we get a better Christ, but we get Christ better. We get Christ better. God uses this meal to bring us into the spiritual presence of Jesus, 
more than when we eat a meal with family and friends around a table, or, or more than when we go for a walk in the woods, or more than when we see the ocean or the mountains. Jesus is spiritually present at this table in a way that he's not throughout the rest of the week. We get a better, not a better Christ, we get Christ better. Here's the second thing about this statement of Jesus when he says, this is my body. It is a proclamation of a substitution. See, no longer will the Passover meal be celebrated with the body of a slain lamb. We now celebrate the Passover, this new Passover, the Lord's Supper, with the body of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus will substitute himself as the sacrificial lamb. He lifts up the bread, which is the bread of affliction. And he says, this is my body. I will be oppressed and afflicted. I will not open my mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. I will be crucified for you by my stripes. You will be healed. Jesus becomes our substitute. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, that a man, that a woman would lay down their life for another. There is no greater love than substitutionary love. It's a true story of two brothers who were playing on the banks of the Mississippi River in St. Louis, and they were told not to play near the river because there were regularly barges that would drag the bottom of the river and deposit the sediments on the bank where the water would rush out of these sand dunes and it would create holes that people could fall into. So they were told, don't go near the river. Well, one day the brothers didn't come back from playing and a search party was sent out to look for them. And after a few hours, the search party found the youngest brother buried up to his neck in sand and passed out. They hurriedly dug him out, were able to revive him, and they asked, where is your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. See, his older brother dove in, placed the younger brother on his shoulders, the younger brother's life for the older brother's death. There is no greater love than substitutionary love. And as Christians, we rejoice that Jesus, our big brother, substituted himself, dove into the darkest places of sin, separated from his father, endured the wrath of God so that we could stand on his shoulders, so that we could be saved, so that we would not have to experience the penalty of sin, separation from the father, nor endure the wrath of God. Jesus was the lamb at the table who would lay his life down so that we might have life in him. Here's my last point on this point of the meal of love. I'll make this quick. Meal of love, it's a relational meal. This is relational. In verse 17, Jesus says, take it, eat it, take it, which means we have to actively receive this love of Jesus. We have to place our faith in him. He ate the bread of affliction. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could receive grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. There's no greater love than what's communicated and experienced at this meal. Here's the second thing about this meal. It's a meal of community. When the Passover meal, back to the Passover meal, when it was finished, the third cup of wine was taken, blessed and was passed around. And then those in attendance would sing Psalm 116 through Psalm 118. 
But just as this third cup was about to be drunk in verse 20, Jesus says something again, shocking. This is the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Now a covenant was when two parties came together, they agreed on something and then bound themselves to this agreement. Normally two parties would take an animal, they would cut it in half, spill the blood, and they would make a covenant and they, they would say, if I do not keep my part, I will be cut in half like this animal. See, a covenant was serious business. Well, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God made a covenant with Israel. It's the covenant that they celebrated every year in Passover. And in it, God promised, I will be your God. You will be my people. So Israel would rem remember this promise every year as they would cut an animal in half, shed its blood to renew the covenant. But here Jesus is saying in this meal, this is my blood of the covenant. I will be cut in half. I will be crucified on your behalf and I will be faithful to all who eat and drink this meal in faith. I will be your God. You will be my people. Both of the sacraments that we celebrate here at Christ Central, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe God is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who establishes the parameters and he is the one who guarantees the promises. God is the faithful covenant keeper. All covenants have symbolic acts or, as I've said earlier, signs or pictures. I think about a marriage covenant. With this ring, I thee wed. It's a promise to the other. I'm going to be faithful to you. Well, in this meal, Jesus establishes and sustains his covenant with a sign and a picture. We eat the bread and we drink the, the wine and we're reminded he is faithful. Even if we are faithless, he is faithful and he will keep his promises to us, his people. He will do it. Listen again to the promise he makes in Exodus 6. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So being in covenant means we're part of a people. Right? That Jesus laid down his life, not just to redeem your individual life. Jesus laid down his life to purchase a community, to purchase the church. See, this is not a party, a meal that we come to every week where you're invited based on where you live. This isn't a neighborhood block party. This isn't a meal where you're invited based on where you work. This isn't a work party. This is not a meal where you're invited based on how much money you have or the clothes you wear or the color of your skin or the education level that you have. This is a party that does not discriminate. It is a meal where Jesus says there's neither Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor, black, Latino, Asian, white, all are welcome. To Christ Central Church, we desire to be a unified community that reflects the diverse makeup of our city. And let's just go ahead and be honest. Unity, oneness is difficult. Unity is vulnerable to attack because we can be prone to favoritism, to cliques, to slander, to gossip that tears at our unity. So we come to this table every week and we come as equals, all made in God's image, beautifully, wonderfully made, all broken and sinful, all coming needy, ready to receive God's grace and his love. This is a weekly soup kitchen for us to come begging and needing 
and for Jesus to feed us from the, of the bread of heaven, to satisfy us in a way that we desperately need. Now, I love this meal for so many reasons, but one of the biggest is that we get to come down together. We come down together, and this meal is irrespective of persons. Your ticket to this meal is not your money. It's not your race. It's not your performance. It's not your good deeds. Your ticket is your neediness and your empty hands. We do this every week because we live in a world that segregates naturally. But in Jesus, we're one. One family feasting on one loaf, one cup. As one author put it, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. It's a meal of community. And Jesus has promised to make us into his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is faithful, and he will keep his covenant promises to us. The last thing about this meal is it's a meal of hope. Back to the Passover meal, the original Passover meal, the fourth cup would be served. And it was the final cup, and it would be drank at the completion of the meal. But Jesus does something again that shocks the, the disciples that are with him. He, he says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup. Jesus is saying this meal is not finished. And it will not be finished until the kingdom of God comes in fullness when Jesus returns the final time. See, as Christians, we put our hope in the coming of the kingdom of God. That we're not home yet. We have received the promise of the return of our king. And in that day, we will eat and drink forever at the table of the lamb. In that day, Revelation 22 tells us there'll be no more tears and no more pain and no more death. In the triumphant return of our king, all will be well, all will be made right, and everything sad will become untrue. So we can be honest because we know that the world we live in is discouraging. There's death and sickness, natural disasters, war, murder, addiction, loss of jobs, broken families, wayward children, financial stress, loneliness, despair. But in this meal, we eat and we have great hope, a hope that allows us to see the reality that though the world is broken, we do not have to be afraid. We wait for a new world order of Jesus' kingdom. See, we don't downplay the brokenness. We don't sweep it under the rug and act like it's not, not there. We realize it's there. And then we engage the broken places. We engage broken people with hope that Christ can and he will redeem. This meal we celebrate weekly gives us hope. And the coming kingdom of God all will be made right until that day we are to engage on his mission. See, we're reminded that this meal's incomplete. It won't be complete until he returns, which means that there are people who need to be at this table who aren't at this table yet. There is work to be done in your neighborhoods and in your families and through you and your jobs that's not done yet. And Jesus will fuel us to engage those places 
by his grace to see his redemption come to earth as it is in heaven. So we take it every week and we receive it. And then we're sent out of this place with joy. We're sent out with joy. That's why some have called this the Eucharist. It's thanksgiving, thankful hearts, a joy that is gifted to us, not because of our circumstances, but in, in, in spite of our circumstances. As we face up against difficult circumstances, as we've heard this morning in congregational prayer, that we can come and we don't live life with a cynical spirit nor a defeatist spirit. But we come and we receive and we receive a, a hope and a joy that gives us steadiness despite the circumstances. Thankful hearts sent out with joy. And then we're sent out to live generous, active lives of sacrifice. I've already said that that God's called us to be on his mission, to, to, to proclaim in word and deed what Christ is doing. That's what we do every week. The hope that we receive in this meal, we're sent out with joy and then a humility to live lives of sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom. You know, there's a Celtic phrase called thin places. Celtic phrase that, that refers to the places and times where it seems like heaven and earth meet. Thin places where the already of the kingdom of God invades our present, where the future hope we have invades our present. This meal is a thin place. It is a meal where heaven invades earth, where heaven and earth kiss, where the already is tasted by those of us who live in the not yet. We need this meal. I love verse 13. It says, Jesus earnestly desires to eat with his apostles, earnestly desire to eat this last night of his life, to proclaim to them what this meal would mean. I love the emotion of Jesus displayed in that verse. Because sometimes it's hard for me to believe that for myself. And I'm sure it's hard for you to believe, but I want you to believe and I want you to trust that Jesus earnestly desires to eat with you today. And each Sunday, he longs for you to come and to feast on his body and his blood. Theologian Claire Davis says that the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. That we forget and then we come back over and over and experience the same grace and mercy of Christ that our hearts and souls need every day. This is what the Lord's Supper helps us with. It's a visible sermon it is as Augustine and Calvin said, the visible sign of a sacred thing, a sacred meal that pointedly reveals the gospel to our hearts and our minds and to our senses. It's a, it's a weekly routine. We don't think that this meal can become old and stale and rote. In fact, we believe routines and rituals deeply embed things into our bones. And the Lord's Supper is a routine that we weekly practice, praying that the gospel of love and the gospel of community and the gospel of hope will be embedded deep into our bones, deep into our souls. And as we leave this meal, we're sent out into the world with hope on a great mission until Christ returns. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to believe that in this meal, we are somewhat spiritually, mystically transported to the right hand of the Father where 
Jesus intercedes on our behalf, that we get to partake of and be reminded of the grace upon grace that is ours. That though we've struggled and though we are at times are unfaithful and we've failed, you are faithful. You do not deny yourself. You do not deny your people, but you have purchased us. You've redeemed us. May we taste that this morning. May we experience your presence with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.